The youngest child of six is often forgotten, tossed aside, and left out. While the other kids get to go out with friends, the youngest child of six has to stay home with mom, dad, and his handicapped sister, Lara. While the other kids work real jobs, the youngest child of six has to weed the garden, vacuum the living room, and clean up the cat litter in the basement. You're catching on. While the older kids have after school sports, babysitting jobs, the youngest child of six has to spend a week of spring break sitting on a couch talking with Grandpa Norbert when he comes to visit. Who wants to stay home with Grandpa Norbert? Let me tell you about it. No child of six wants to watch two hours of As the World Turns and Days of Our Lives while Grandpa Norbert falls asleep snoring in his stained blue slacks held up by suspenders wearing a white short-sleeved button-down shirt with a dark blue worn-out cardigan sweater salted with small white speckles of dandruff resting casually on each shoulder. No youngest child of six wants to hand Grandpa Norbert his 23 assorted vitamins and blood pressure pills, helping him see all of them under his scratch Coke bottle glasses and making sure he swallows them all, every last one. No youngest child of six wants to stir Grandpa Norbert's half a cup instant Maxwell Health decaf coffee, pouring the necessary two packs of artificial sweeteners, and then bring it on a TV tray along with two unbuttered pieces of toasted rye bread, a single hard-boiled egg, and a folded crossword section of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And no youngest child of six wants to sit still in a chair while Grandpa Norbert chants his rosary prayers for an hour. And who wants to go fishing with Grandpa Norbert? No youngest child of six wants to see Grandpa Norbert try to bait an old fishing hook with a hand that has two missing fingers from an old factory accident as the small leaky metal boat that they are squatting in bobs up and down on the frigid Lake Erie waves early on a cold, overcast Tuesday morning. No youngest child of six likes to smell of oil, gas, and Water mix coming from the sputtering five-horsepower motor as you troll the lake's coastline while you hopelessly are wishing for non-existent perch and walleye to bite on the other end of your line under mandated silence. No, nope. no youngest child of six wants to go back home so he can learn how to play solitaire in a kitchen table while the black and white television drones on and on in the background. The monotone voice of Henry Kissinger saying incoherent things about President Nixon, Watergate, and the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty with the Soviet Union. As the youngest child of six, I often wondered, why does life have to be so miserable? So miserable. Does adulthood always mean the end of fun and joy? Does being mature mean boredom, aching joints, bad coffee, blood pressure pills, the smell of Ben Gay, and always worried over retirement savings not being enough? When I was the youngest child of six, I never wanted to grow up. I don't want to be miserable like Grandpa Norbert. I still don't want to grow up. Why does life have to be so miserable? Doesn't it seem like life is always miserable? Is life meant to be miserable? Where we're whining and cranky and complaining and bitter and angry. Why are faces you encounter every day, for the most part, unfriendly and happy and irritated? Why is everyone so serious? Always so serious. Well, in my studies this week, I found out why. 
I also found out why my German grandfather Norbert was such a crusty curmudgeon. I found it. It's in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, starting in verse 14 to the end. Follow along with me as we read. Today's title is Cursed, because we are cursed. Starting in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she is the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, and knowing good and evil now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat. And live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Cursed. The world is cursed. Right after Adam and Eve were ashamed that they were found naked, which is verse 13 of Genesis 3, God has a various sit-down meeting in Eden's living room with Adam, Eve, and the serpent. In verse 14, God begins to chastise them with words that if we would have heard, they would have utterly terrified and silenced us. It must have been a terrible, awful day. For when God speaks, reality happens instantaneously. When he says something, it is. He spoke planets and stars just by his voice into existence. And so now he's going to speak something new. He's never uttered before. And something's going to happen when he speaks. I wonder if his words caused a stillness to fall over all his creation where you could hear a foreboding rumble starting to echo off the valley walls of Eden. I wonder if the moment God began to talk, the sky grew black. Clouds rolled heavy and angry, sending the first howling wind through the forests of Eden. Kind of like what's happened up there. The tree fell down. We have spider webs up over on that side, and thorns and thistles are appearing. After his voice, I'm sure you could see the birds scatter. The animals probably ran to hide from the angry face of God. I wonder if those same winds caused the boughs of the tree of good and evil to sway having its leaves finally drop off the branches 
swirl and tumble to the ground for the very first time. All because of God's speak. What did he say? Verse 14. Verse 14 says the word, because you've done this, cursed are you. Cursed are you. He says it again in verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed. God's words alter and transform things, and from this moment on, life is under the curse. And this transformation is not good. The word curse in the Hebrew is a little bit different than the way we use the word curse. We normally see the word curse, and the way we see it kind of from a creepy Halloween movie or you know, one of those old movies where the Wicked Witch says, Dorothy, I'm going to curse you for wearing your sister's ruby slippers. Or Harry Potter, I'm going to curse you because you follow Dumbledore. You know, it's an evil happening. But the Hebrew word doesn't have that idea. When God curses things, it is a righteous act of justice. He warns humanity, and when humanity doesn't listen, he must Punish those who don't take his word seriously. You disobey, God judges. But the purpose of the curse is what I want to explore for just a little bit. Is God intentionally trying to hurt man with the curse? That's the question. That's what some people wonder. So God says he doesn't do evil, so is he trying to cause harm? The actual rendering of the Hebrew word or R means that God is holding back or limiting putting a fence around his grace and his benevolence that he originally wanted to fully give. But he doesn't anymore because he knows if he fully gives it, it will be abused because the human heart is now twisted. It's sort of like giving candy to your children. If you said, here, have all of it, you know they'd abuse it. That's what curse means. God is now holding back what he first wanted to give. His grace and benevolence will be abused. Jesus says in the New Testament like this. You've heard it like this, but it's the same idea. I will not toss my pearls before swine. It's the opposite of blessed are you. It's actually now God's word is not necessarily blessed are you, but because of Adam's sin, it's woe to you. If you notice why God sent it, the first reason is because it's a just result of sin. Look at verse 14. Because we disobeyed, it must come. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, the result is, cursed are you. So you could say it like this. It's a consequence of disobedience. Never forget. Never forget. And I really want you to listen to this. Never forget. Sin always, always, always has consequences. Always. You could say it like this, sin takes no prisoners. That means it's callous, it's relentless, it's sneaky, it wrecks, it ruins, and it has no pity. It doesn't care who you are, you sin. The curse starts becoming ramped up. In other words, the moment you sin, his benevolence and grace is held back. Second thing from verse 17, if you look at verse 17 of Genesis 3, 
He says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. That statement is not just a result, but it's also the constant state now of reality. The ground now is adversarial to us. We'll talk about that in a second, but I'm just saying the curse has made reality broken. The curse is how it is. A different way to say this is the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Why are there earthquakes? Why are there famines? Why is there murder? Why are there addictions, divorces, anger, hatred, diseases like cancer? Because the curse is not a joke. It's not a joke. Adam and Eve did not believe God when he warned them not to eat. And now, it is not time to stop believing that God still judges sin. Every time we sin, the intensity, the duration, and the viciousness of the curse ramps up. Romans 1 says it like this, The wrath of God is being revealed, is being revealed, against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. Theologians call this moment the fall. If you, if you take it like this, the Bible's written in four parts, People, the scholars will say. Creation, everything's good. Then you have the fall. Then you have what's needed, redemption, and then what's going to be ultimately consummation. We're in part two, the fall. What is the fall? It's when God's perfect order has been broken. The moment God said, cursed are you, and cursed is the ground, everything in nature, we're going to see this very clearly in a second, has shifted. It's off its axis. It's kind of like the level on the bubble is now leaning up. It's not in the middle anymore. The glass that was once full is now cracked, leaking, and mostly empty. There's a thoroughness and a curse's corruption. Like the matrix, it's everywhere and it's behind everything. And now we are given new lenses that are smudged with mud. Many people try to put on rose-colored glasses. They say, just be positive. Be positive. Breathe positivity in and out. Believe positive things and positivity will come to you. But the, the reality is curse. Positivity is, doesn't mean anything, actually. There is no force of positivity. It's funny, as I once was, I read this investigation of a church that believed in healing. And if you, you know, if you pray hard enough, if you believe strong enough, you can heal every disease. And this church did a kind of, they, they studied the people over 100 years. And you know, everyone in that original church all died. They all died. It's because we're cursed. That's the reason. We're cursed. It's just the facts. I want you to go to Luke 13. I, I believe um, I believe Luke 13 may be the most uh, mind-blowing passage in Scripture on reality the way it is. Luke, thir uh, Luke 13 is Jesus talking, and so there's, a, there's authority to it. And it's shocking. I'll read through it. I'll explain what's going on. Because if you understand what's being said here, 
it should flip your whole world upside down. I'll explain it in a second. Luke 13, verse 1. It says, There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So here's what's going on. They're walking down Jerusalem Street. They get the Jerusalem front page news. The front page news said some Jewish people went into the temple and Pilate had them murdered right next to their sacrifices. And the blood was mingled. The blood from their body mingled with the blood of their sacrifices. So you can see them going to Jesus and you can hear the disciples saying, how did God allow this to happen in the temple where good godly Jews went in and they were murdered? I mean, that's shocking. That's not fair. These guys are religious people, Jesus. They got murdered. Pilate did it. How can God allow this? You can hear them going on and on. Listen to Jesus' response. This is rather shocking. If you really listen to it, and I'll give you an example of that. Here's what he answered him. Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? He's saying, so you're probably thinking they probably got murdered because they deserved that they sinned or something. Right, Jesus? Is that why it happened? He says, no, no, I tell you, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, you know what? There's no such thing really as somebody that's innocent. So you know that child that dies in an airplane crash? Or you know the people that die in a hurricane off the Florida coast? And we say, why did God let that happen? They're, they don't deserve that. And Jesus said they don't. They don't. He's saying we all deserve it. Unless you repent, that means change your ways, turn towards Him, you're going to perish. That word perish is a Greek word which means life, fabric is falling apart. Colossians says Jesus holds all things together. What if He lets go? We perish. He ends this by saying, or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders? So there's 18 people walking down the roads of Jerusalem. There's this tower. And it just happened to fall on 18 people and kill them. And Jesus said, you probably think they deserved it. They're probably worse sinners than you. He says, no, in verse 5. But unless you repent, you too deserve to have a tower fall on you. We're cursed. That's, that should shock you because no, everybody around you doesn't think like that. When bad things happen, we say, what's going on? If Jesus was around, he'd say, what's going on? Normal life, deserved fruits, just desserts. That's because of the curse. So let's get specific about the curse. Go back to Genesis 3. And by specific... What is exactly cursed? How is the world exactly cursed? There are four realms. We're going to find four realms of relationship that each person has. And each one of these realms is cursed. And you'll see very specifically what they are. I believe if we understand them and we know how they are broken, we, we can begin learning to fix them or at least learning how to cope with them and not being shocked and taken off guard like, I never knew. Here's the four realms. The first realm is called the spiritual realm. The spiritual realm is where the angels live, the angelic hosts dwell in the heavens. 
The spiritual is the unseen parts. It says that Jesus created the seen and the unseen parts. I'm talking right now about the unseen realm. The unseen realm is very real. It influences our realm. And it's very dangerous to fall prey to the idea that out of sight, out of mind, because I can't see something, does not mean it doesn't exist. This realm affects your every day. Let me talk about the original intent of this realm. The intent of this realm was to have the angels were made to be servants. And they were allowed to do three things. Number one, they were allowed to be in the very presence of God in His dwelling place. It says they actually go before His throne on the fiery stones. Whatever that means, that sounds pretty cool. He's over the sapphire They dwell above the sapphire ceiling and they go before the throne of God amongst the fiery stones. So they're allowed to be in His presence. Second thing about angels, they're messengers. They are sent by God to humans to deliver truth. Third thing about angels is they're here to serve us. It says in Hebrews that angels serve followers of Christ. It means they encourage them, give them strength, lift them up. They probably hold back cars from hitting them on the road. Angels are there. They're real. Now, what happened to them? We find it in verse 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall... So he's, he's talking to the snake, but ultimately getting to Satan. But the first thing he said, snake, because you let your body be as a host for Satan, you're going to be eating dirt the rest of your life. Poor little snakies. Do you have, do you have pity on the snake when he comes hissing by you? They, that's, their, that's their destiny right here. But he is directly talking to Satan through the serpent. And so what he's going to tell Satan is found in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So, it's the word enmity. What does that mean? Here's what this means. Because because Satan fell, he no longer can do these three things, so they get turned up on their head. Instead of worshiping, he got kicked out of heaven. That's why Jesus said, I saw him fall like lightning from the sky. And he took a third of the angels with him. So he's not allowed to dwell amongst the fiery stones anymore. Second thing is he no longer is allowed to deliver truth. So all he can do is lie. That's all he can do. That's why in 1 Peter, I mean 1 Timothy 4:1, it says that doctrines of demons come in. That's where we get false religions through demons. That's why when you say, oh, all religions are the same, that's a doctrine of demon. That's not true. They lie. They can't tell the truth anymore. And then they used to serve, but now since they are thrown out, they now torment. That's what enmity means. Enmity means they are adversarial to mankind. Listen to some verses. It says in 1 Peter 5, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Second Timothy 2, the devil wants to take people captive to do his will. Ephesians 5, 6, Ephesians 6, put on the full armor, for we are at war. Oppression, 
depression, sickness, sadness, fear, anxiety are often Satan's direct adversarial attacks on you. Sometimes when you're alone and you've not been in a word, and you know people really don't spend time in a word. Did you know that? Like really, most of you don't. I'm just... And when you don't, you forget what truth is and you start believing this carried messages of the demon. That's why truth is so important. But sometimes people feel alone. They don't read the Word of God. They feel worthless. They feel helpless. They feel lost. And they want to quit. More than likely, you've been listening to Satan's nasty voice. We are at war. Learn to live like it. To live at war, you need to renew your mind through the Word of God, and you have to take every thought captive. Don't let every thought invade. Why do we? I feel terrible like nobody loves me. Take it captive. Stop it. Stop the depression. Second realm is the physical realm. This is where we presently live. It's where we live and move and have our being. It's called the seen realm. Jesus created the seen and unseen. So we're talking about the seen realm. This is the place I really don't need to inform you about. You know it quite well. You know how frustrating it is. You see the decay daily with your eyes. You can smell it. It's moldy, musty, rotten, soggy. You know all about it. You hear it. The minor keys that waft through the trees and the forest. And that you hear moans. You hear the cries of people you love. Hosea describes the effects of this physical world from the curse. If you go to Hosea, it's right after Daniel. I'll read it. I know some of you guys don't like to turn there, but this is an amazing verse. Hosea 4. It's a tiny little minor prophet. It's after Daniel. He's the guy that was in the lion's den. And then you go to Hosea. And you go to chapter 4. And listen to what this says. This is shocking because here's, here's what I want to bring your attention to. When you sin in this physical world, I don't think you believe you're affecting it. Hosea would, Hosea would beg to differ. Listen. Hosea 4.1 Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with you. It means he's got a, he wants to talk to you about something with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, here's the result of sin. Verse 3, the land mourns. And all who dwell in it languish. That means they're tired, they're weary, they're sick and tired of being tired. They're bitter. They aren't prospering. There's no joy. And also, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and even the fish of the sea are taken away. They are affected. It's crazy, isn't it? So, if we go back to Genesis 3, I'll tell you very quickly how the physical realm is affected by the curse. I don't need to dwell on it. You understand it. The first one we find in Genesis 3.16, 
To the woman God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Some uh, translations say, I will surely multiply your pains in childbearing. And the idea is, originally intended, there was probably minimal pain in childbirth. Now it's been intensified. And every woman who's had a child understands that. Especially when the epidural doesn't work. You understand the pain. But even the idea is that there will be pain. The idea is there will be pains in childbearing. It doesn't just stop after they're born. It keeps going through their childhood, teenage, and adult years. There's pain that's brought. You want joy for your children. They make decisions that you know are going to, it, it pains you. There's also going to be suffering. Look at verse 18. Or beginning at the end of verse 17, he's talking to Adam now. God says, you shall not eat of the garden's food anymore. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the day of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So the second thing is work is going to be hard. It's going to be toil. It's going to be sweat. To survive, you're going to have to work. I think originally work was meant to be fully enjoyable. Now I think it's probably maybe 50-50. I've once heard if you want to get a good job, get a job where you have 80% joy, but you always will have the 20%. Most of us have about 30% joy, 70. Toil. Waking up. Give me coffee. I can't make it. Oh, I hate this place. We have that going on all the time. God says that's the way it is now. That's the way it is. Third thing is you're going to die. End of verse 19. Out of it you were taken, the ground, out of the ground you were taken, you're dust. In dust you will return. That word, that phrase, you are dust, and to dust you will return, we get the word mortal. You're mortal. You will die. You, oh, you might last 70 years, it says in Psalm 90, length of your days may be 70, or if you're lucky, longer than that. But God has to limit living in wickedness. He's got to limit it. It's part of the curse. He doesn't want wickedness to continue. And you probably don't either. So understanding these three things should prepare you for living on this earth. Better than most people out there. That's why this world is so backwards. If you think you have it bad at work, think about those people really sweating and toiling in like Asia and China and Korea and Vietnam. And knowing this should prepare you for an eternity one day where you can rest. Oh, can't wait for that day. So be very careful about how much you whine. Be very careful. I deserve a better job, better pay. Not such hard work. I get completely unfair treatment. No, you're living in a broken world. You want to really be able to survive the broken world? Sweat and toil and people, it'll be easier for you. Be prepared to sweat and toil. I, I'll never forget this guy I once knew who wanted to be a football hero, but he didn't want to sweat. He really did. He wanted to be a football hero, but he didn't want to sweat. So he sat the bench and whined. The coach, if you only knew how good I was, yeah, but you, it takes sweat. So in conclusion of the physical realm, I'd say my friends, it's that the milk has already been spilled, so we 
we need to stop learning. We need to stop crying over it. We cry all the time about my bones, my aches, my pains. It's, it's the curse. Social realm. The third realm God is going to detail is the way we communicate and congregate with others. Specifically, he's going to get into the marriage relationship because it was really important to make the marriage relationship work at the beginning because he's going to display the image of God through the male and female. So he goes after Adam and Eve and says, all right, here's what's going to happen. Look at what he says at the end of verse 16. It's an odd phrase. I will read it and then explain it. He says, after you are going to have pain in childbearing, he says, Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So the key is understanding what does desire mean? What does that mean? Some scholars said the word desire should be taken, they'd say in a positive way, meaning that the woman wants the relationship more than anything. It's all about romance and it's putting the relationship above stewardship. You know, that's why women like romantic novels and dancing and Instagram photos. And that's why they love talking about Valentine's Day and having chocolates. And I don't buy that answer. I don't think that's what he's talking about. That doesn't make much sense in the context. But there's another context, and this, this word is used in the very next chapter. If you go to chapter 4, verse 7, desire is used in that verse. I'll read it, and then I'll explain it. So he's talking to Cain. We're going to learn this next week. Cain wants to kill his brother Abel. He's hungry to kill him. To kill him. So God goes to Cain in verse 7 and says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So sin wants to capture Cain's heart. And God's like, it's desiring you. It wants to rule you, but you must rule it. So here's what one scholar says about back to Genesis 3.16. In God wants Cain to fight back, turn the tables, and dominate sin's desire. So when you apply this to 3.16, the desire for the woman is to break the relationship of equality that they once had and turn it into a relationship of domination. And in turn, the husband will respond by trying to be the tyrant and dominate the woman. So instead of being a complementary, they are complementary. That means the man and woman work together as co-equals each doing their role where the man was the head and the woman was the helpmeet, and they, we work fine in that. The woman now wants to be the head and wants to dominate the man and tell him what to do. And it makes the man, man angry, so he just wants to rule. So it's one on one side, it's domination. The other side, it's tyranny. They become sparring partners instead of co-laborers in God's vineyard trying to each dominate the other. Instead of working together to rule over God's creation, they turn their attention to rule over each other. This is the curse. That is why the Me Too movement is so, I think, controversial. In some sense, it's women fighting back against male tyranny. But in fighting back against male tyranny, they hate all males, so they want to dominate. It's toxic. It's all because of the curse. Mankind especially men and women, have been made to work together. But we always seem to be competing. The battle of the sexes. What, what does that even mean? That's so ridiculous. We've been made to work together. And the saddest of all is when 
it turns into hatred. Here's my advice for marriage. It's very simple. If you're married, tell each other we're on the same team. We're on the same team. Third area, or fourth area, is the eternal realm. This focuses on our relationship with God. This is the worst part of the story, starting in verse 22. Lord God said, behold, this is after he ate, he's talking to, this is Trinitarian conversation. Behold, uh, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat. There were two trees, the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And they didn't eat yet from the tree of life. And it seems like they don't want them to eat from the tree of life. I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. They say, therefore, verse 23, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he's taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden. He placed the cherubim. Those are strong angels, big strong angels. Cherubim with flaming sword. So you could never get in. Every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So this final realm focuses on man dwelling with God. And they were banished from Eden. So the fourth part of the curse is we have been, we call this spiritual death, we have been separated from God. Adam and Eve didn't want to go, they had to go, and it's still the case. We are banished from God because we're sinful. We're corrupted. It says in Habakkuk 1.13, God's eyes are too pure to look upon iniquity, so we are banished. We are banished. Ephesians says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're separated from God because of our trespasses and sins. This is the worst part of the curse. Actually, Hebrews says it like this. You know when a man dies in Hebrews 9.27? He dies and then he faces judgment. Ah, that's terrible. Question, what would happen if Adam would have eaten from the tree of life? I really can't speculate. Some people would say the idea is they'd live forever, so if they ate the tree of life in the garden, they would live forever in a corrupted, cursed state, never to be able to change again, which is horrible to think about. Is there any hope? As I said earlier, there's a thoroughness in the curse's corruption. It's like being sprayed by a skunk. It always, the smell always lingers. It's everywhere. So should we give up? Should we be negative? Should we just be whining all the time and pouting? Should we be like my grandpa Norbert and just exist? In miserable despair? Why do people decide to live in miserable despair where they're mad at everybody, they're always grumpy, and they're always complaining? Why? You don't have to because God always offers a way out. He always has a glimmer of hope. And in this passage, there's two. If you look close, they're easy to miss. They're kind of odd. But they're amazing. Let me read them for you. The first one's found in verse 15. He's talking to Satan, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. We just talked, we talked about that earlier, and between your offspring and her offspring. And then he says this strange thing. He shall bruise your head. Who shall bruise your head? 
Well, the offspring of the woman. It's a strange way to phrase it. Why well, doesn't it say the offspring of Adam? But he says the off- seed of the woman is the idea. If you're a Bible scholar, it should cause you to say, that's interesting. Seed of the woman shall bruise your head, meaning you'll get, he'll get a head blow from the seed of the woman. You'll bruise his heel. You'll do some damage to him, but it won't be fatal like the head blow. So what is he talking about? Does he, is he saying here, God's saying here, there might be somebody that will take care of Satan and his work. He'll be like an avenger who will, who is going to stop the deceit and the torture and the torment from the realm of the demonic. Is that what he's saying? I don't know. I don't know. Sounds interesting. I want you now to look at verse 23. He does something else here, which to me brings an incredible glimmer of hope. Even though Adam and Eve sinned, it says in verse 23, actually, where is it? No, verse 21. Even though Adam and Eve sinned, verse 21 says, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. See, before this, they were in shame, they were naked and ashamed, and God himself clothed them to cover their nakedness. How did he do that? Did he have to kill something? Like kill an animal? To provide covering? Will he find another way to cover our continuing shame? I don't know. I wonder. So is there a divinely provided covering that we get from here? If you keep reading this book, so if you read this book, go past Genesis and go to this area called the New Testament in this book, there appears a man. Let me tell you a little bit about this man. He was perfect. But he died unjustly. He died really strange. He was innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. And he died. But his death was really weird. <laughs> like it was strange. According to the Jews, if you, if you are a blasphemer, which they claim to be, he should be stoned. He wasn't stoned. He should have been maybe killed with a stone, a sword. He wasn't killed that way. He wasn't locked in a cell until he died. A lot of guys were at that time. You know how he died? It's really weird. He hung on a tree. He hung, hung naked on a tree. We call it the cross. But it's a tree nonetheless. It's made out of wood. And he hung there. Why does this matter? Because you know what every Jew knows? There's an Old Testament verse that says this. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It's a very odd phrase. So that means Jesus, God's Son, the perfect one who did nothing wrong, was, became a curse for us. The curse that was thrown on us was thrown on Him. He took our full curse, and though the world is cursed, no, we deserve the curse, Jesus Himself became the curse, and then after He became the curse, the most amazing thing happened. All of the realms that we were once cursed turned upside down. They were turned just the opposite. Look at this first one. The cross made a joke out of Satan and the demons. It says in Colossians 2.15 that God made sport out of them. They thought they were going to win by putting Jesus on the cross, but it was a reversal. He fooled them. He took away their power. He made sport. He won the war on the cross. The second realm, the physical realm, Jesus said he suffered in his body and he died. 
He suffered, so he took the pain. All the pains that Eve and Adam were going to, all the toil, all the suffering, he suffered in his body. And then that dust, all dust returned, he died. He took that curse too. And then it says he is our peace in Ephesians. And it's interesting in Ephesians it says, we are separated from one another horizontally. We are separated from God vertically, but Jesus brought us all together. He reversed the full curse. Reversed it all. And one of the most amazing verses says this. I actually open up to it. I love this verse. Go to Isaiah 12. Jared, I wish I would have, you, I wish I would have used this in a first sermon. Make me angry. This is the coolest verse in the Old Testament to wrap this whole thing up. Isaiah 12. Okay, so this is the song of Isaiah, and you've got to listen close to it. You will say, you will say is what he's saying. Your heart will say this. You will say, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Why? For though you were angry with me, your curse is heavy on me. You were angry. Your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord God is my strength. He's my song. He's become my salvation. And then verse 3, with joy you will draw from the water wells of salvation. Remember the curse held back grace? Now he's saying the gates to grace are overflowing and with joy you can draw from them. Why? Because he reversed it. There will no longer be any curse. If you do as verse 2 says, it says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust. If you trust in that payment of Jesus on the cross, He became a curse for you. You can reverse the curse in your own life. You can reverse the curse. Do you want to? Or do you like, do you like being like my grandfather Norbert? Do you want me to rub Ben Gay on your shoulders so you can smell like that? And always be angry? Ah, kids should be seen and not heard. Give me some more Nescafe, will you? Grandpa, you happy to? Oh, shut up, kid. You know. Why are we so angry? The curse has been reversed. It's been reversed. Live like it. Can you live like it? I'm going to church. How you doing? I believe in Jesus too. Yeah, oh, my leg. Stop it. Stop it. The curse has been reversed. Let's pray.